Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. It's a Pete tweet. It comes from an account called Moral Compass. And I always try to follow accounts like that. So uh, Moral Compass says, People who think privilege comes from skin color need to read Hillbilly Elegy. Great book by J.D. Vance. You can see the movie as well. The book was better. Um, There was a... I remember reading something. I think it was an interview with uh, now Senator Vance uh, about the book. And after uh, it had come out and he would go around and do readings and appearances and speeches and the like. And he talked about uh, how he would encounter people who were doing work in uh, inner cities and urban core areas. And they read, read his book and these were black leaders, civic leaders and such. And they would come up to him, a white guy from Appalachia And they'd say, what you talk about in this book, I see it every day in my neighborhood, too. Right? This is not a race thing. It is a human thing. It is a cultural thing. Um, We celebrate the wrong things in our society. We celebrate the wrong things, whether it's criminal behavior. The philosopher Chris Rock talked about this 20 years ago. Right? More respect coming out of jail than you do coming out of prison. Grad school. In J.D. Vance's book, he talked about being too big for your britches. That was the common theme. It was if you got out, then you abandoned us. You got out and you got too big for your britches. And he equated it to the uh, the lobster or the crabs in the bucket. The crabs in the bucket, which is if you get a bucket, you fill it with crabs, they could get out. If they all work together, they could get out. But whenever one crab starts climbing up the wall, the other crabs reach up, grab them, and bring them back down, and then they all end up on someone's plate for dinner. What is wokeism? So I played last hour the interview that Bethany Mandel did. Uh, She has a new book out. Uh, Where is it? Stolen Youth, about how she believes woke ideology is upending American childhood. Okay, So she's out promoting this book. She appears on this show, and she's asked to define woke, and she has a panic attack, which had been building, she said, from the from before she even got on the air, minutes prior, she said it started building because she's hearing the, the back and forth between the anchors talking about parents, and one of them is making disparaging remarks about parents in general, about parenting, about having a lot of kids, whatever. She's got six kids, so she thinks, I'm about to get nailed. They're, they're, they're about to spring some trap on me, and she starts working it all up in her head, and she has this panic attack during the interview, and as she is asked, what can you define what woke is, and she freezes, and then, of course, the clip goes viral, and the left uses it to make this argument that nobody on the right knows what woke means, which is just ridiculous. We've got some, uh, yeah, here we go. This is from Viva Fry. 
Woke is the ideology of insincere fabrication of victims and victimhood through manufactured oppression, discrimination for the ultimate purpose of acquiring power through such victimhood and detaining undeserved social standing through faux outrage and virtue signaling. Right. This because remember the, the first the first component of wokeism is that the institutions of American society are are intentionally set up to oppress. Okay? We are no longer an honor society. We are no longer a virtue society. We went over that yesterday. We were talking about how we've, you know, our society has adopted the Clintonian standard of ethics in their elected officials. Um, so we're not a, like a chivalry society, right? We're not that anymore either. Well, what are we? We are a victim society, right? Power is achieved through your underdoggedness, through your victimhood. And then you get to use that in order to penalize others or to advance ahead of others, right? Went over this a couple of weeks ago. People don't lie on applications about being white, right? So there is obviously not an advantage there in certain application uh, settings, right? So you have this this, uh, victim society, this victim culture at play. And well, what does that mean? It means that, yes... People then will fabricate things to become victims because that is what is rewarded in the society that values oppressed status. So even if you're not, this is why you, this is why you have to dismiss uh, Appalachian people because they're white, even if they're coming from extreme poverty, the likes of which are unseen really anywhere else in the country, but uh, you, you have to ignore them. This is why you end up calling Hispanic people white adjacent. This is why you lump Asian people into white groupings when it comes to academic performance, right? Because if they're, if they're refusing to be victims, then there has to be some explanation as to why the disparate impact, which again, this is part two of the definition, that any gap in performance between large groups proves that the oppression exists. Like this is a big problem. For example, you start breaking down data on wealth between African Americans and actual Africans that come to America, <laughs> right? Like Nigerians, they're like one of the wealthiest demographics in America. Did you know that? Yeah, it's amazing. They come here and they're like, just make money hand over fist. I think it's because like they're all princes and they they email everybody and. They get money like, no, I'm kidding. But uh, no, but they are. They're very, uh, it's like as a, as a demographic cohort, they are very wealthy. So what explains that? Well, you have to, I guess they're white adjacent too, right? This is the problem. This is the problem. You're, you're viewing everything through this equity lens and it then forces you to make unrealistic let's say okay i'll just say it stupid conclusions it draws it makes you draw stupid conclusions okay noah rothman writing at national review also but he's the editor over at uh, commentary magazine and uh he calls this current uh, current debate an exhaustingly familiar spectacle in which the american left and its allies in the media pretend that a word with an all but universally understood definition is all of a sudden incomprehensible A campaign consisting of straight reporting, survey data, and contrived viral moments all contribute to the desired impression that those who wield the term don't know what it means. 
specifically if they use it as a pejorative. It is hard to avoid the conclusion here that what is driving the campaign is that woke has become a political liability for those who once proudly embraced it. Precisely. This is how we know that woke is losing. They're trying to tell us we don't know what it means. They did the same thing to us about three years ago with critical race theory. Oh, yeah, here's that term. Uh, you, you can't even define it. Well, actually, yes, I can. It uh, comes from neo-Marxism, Antonio Gramsci, critical theory, then critical race theory. It's like it all comes from the cultural long march through the institutions. Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, Kimberly Crenshaw. Have I said enough? Uh, am I credentialed enough to now discuss this thing? Um, these periodic crusades against shorthand bubble up from the partisan depths when the left is losing a political conflict, and rather than change their tactics, they change the language, right? Molly Ball, writing at The Atlantic, she's a reporter, she picked up on this phenomenon a decade ago when she noticed that the Obama administration had ditched the phrase gun control. <laughs> do, you, do you remember this? They stopped using gun control. Anti-gun activists had begun toying with alternatives such as gun violence prevention and firearms regulation. And then, of course, gun safety, which edged out its competitors. Molly Ball observed at the time that the phrase was confusing insofar as it evokes a firearms training course more than any legislative initiative. And it still does. Right. But the phrase emerged as the consensus alternative to gun control because something had to replace gun control because that phrase became toxic. So they had to figure out a new word for gun control. And that's how they came to gun safety. And at the beginning of the last decade, anti-firearms activists had this conundrum. They convinced themselves that the polling indicated that the public preferred their position. But legislatively, everything went down in defeat. Why? Why? And so what did they come up with? What was their answer? It's the words we use. It's the messaging, right? I've been saying this for years. It's never the, right, it's never the message. It's the messaging. That's what they always chalk it up to. We haven't gotten our message out. That's all. People, if they knew what our positions actually were, they would agree with us. No, no, we don't. So Noah Rothman writing at National Review, how we know that woke is losing because now they're telling us, you don't know what it means. You need to define it. They want to change what the word means because the word has become toxic. Okay. And look, I sympathize with, uh, with uh, African-Americans who have been using the term woke long before the leftist liberal elites, you know, grabbed a hold of it and wrote their books like White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. And like since they started doing all that and pushing it into sort of the mainstream lexicon and then turning it into, you know, everything under the progressive banner. I get it. But I'm sorry they did that. And now everybody everybody understands what wokeism is. And it is. Neo-Marxism. I'm sorry, but that's what it is. You can, I mean, it, or here, I got another email regarding this very same thing. Joseph says, I tire of arguing semantics with the left. Let's just call it what it is. It's anti-white, anti-Christian Bolshevism. See, Solzhenitsyn, 
for an even clearer definition. Um, Tim says, wokeism, I consider wokeism as repackaged Marxism, neo-Marxism. The left always changes the language when people catch on to their agenda. Look at the term liberal. It was a desirable thing as the root of the word is liberty or freedom. That until, of course, FDR gave it a bad name. And then they started calling it progressivism. And then, of course, they went to went back to liberal. And now they're back to progressive. Keep trying to find different ways to brand themselves because it's always the messaging, you know. It's the it's never the message; it's the way they deliver the message. That people just aren't hearing it. How about this one? Reproductive rights. Right, this one's gone through a number of iterations just recently, right? Because only a couple of years ago it was just called choice, pro-choice, right? Everybody just said pro-choice, pro-choice. Well, then they were like, well, it's not really choice. It's a decision. We, and then it was reproductive justice and women's health care. In the wake of the Supreme Court Dobbs decision, you even had the, the House pro-choice caucus advocating to get rid of the word choice and call it a decision. Or, okay, how about this one? Global warming. I'm old enough to remember global warming, right? And that change that happened to climate change. But by 2019, climate change... That had to be replaced, right? Climate change replaced global warming. Global warming replaced global cooling. So now all of those have to be replaced because climate change is too neutral. And, of course, it carries too much political baggage. In other words, it, too, became toxic. Do you ever notice conservatives never have to change their brand? (laughs) Nobody ever says, I'm not a conservative. Oh, oh, don't, don't call me a conservative. Oh, I don't like that term. No, people... We'll tell you, like, I'm a free market capitalist. I'm a lowercase libertarian. I don't I don't reject any of these labels because they are accurate. Um, earlier this year, Politico chronicled the an effort by scientists and meteorologists to ditch the climate change term. They needed a new lexicon to convey a sense of urgency. And the teenage weather watcher Greta Thunberg, how dare you, suggested climate breakdown, climate crisis, climate emergency, ecological breakdown, ecological crisis, and ecological emergency. She said all of that. She wanted all of that to replace climate change. That did not happen. But climate crisis did. That emerged as the victor. Climate crisis is now the term that media uses. Because, of course, they... Oh, also, how about... Don't call it sexual reassignment surgery. Mm-mm. It's gender-affirming care. It's common-sense gun laws. Not all of these efforts to massage the language have taken off. Admittedly, they've had some failures, right? For example, <laughs> the effort to fold Hispanics into the BIPOC group, the black, indigenous, and people of color, right? Or or the even worse one, uh, Latinx, right? Latinx, when Hispanics started drifting into the Republican column, yeah, that one had a catastrophic failure on the launch pad. That did not go well for the left, right? All of these efforts that Noah Rothman highlights, all of these efforts to change the language, they all come from the same insecurities. The left's war against euphemisms that no longer advance their objectives, their political objectives, right? This is the way they self-soothe. This is the way they delude themselves. They self-soothe and avoid confronting their own policy failures. And they do that 
by saying you're to blame. They, it, it is it is the manifestation, the representation of Principal Skinner from the documentary series The Simpsons, where he says, you know, oh, could it be the children are, could it be all, like everybody, all the children are right and I'm wrong? Oh, no, definitely the children are wrong, right? Like this rejection that everyone around you is saying, that's stupid. You shouldn't do this. That's wrong. You're wrong. And you reject all of that and say, no, 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 they're all wrong. Everybody is wrong except me. See, Democrats don't lose political fights. They only lose the messaging war. And that explains why the left is so inclined to shoot the messenger, right? It's, oh, it's just a, it's a failure in the messaging war. We didn't lose the, po- the policy fight because we have the right political view. All right. Are you prepared for a disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for a military surplus that's real? Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old school traditional store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time. American made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear, Old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and all the time at oldgrouch.com. Over at The Atlantic, a piece by David Graham headlined, Wokeness has replaced socialism as the great conservative boogeyman. (laughs) Uh, No, it hasn't. (laughs) Because it's kind of the same. Kind of the same. During Barack Obama's first term, The American right became fixated on the supposed threats of communism and socialism. At the time, it felt like another weird throwback trend from the Cold War, along with flared jeans and gated reverb or jello molds. Notice the dismissiveness of this argument, this approach, right? It's mockery. It's ridicule. It's not actually addressing any of the actual concerns that people had about the growth in government that was now intervening in more parts of our lives. The proximate causes were clear enough, he says. Huge government spending to bolster the economy by bailing out banks, but whatever, and efforts to expand health insurance coverage, even if fears of a coming socialist America were clearly overhyped. Oh, and also, uh, small little detail that um, Barack Obama was a red diaper baby, right? Aside from that, Uh, Which is a pretty big piece of information in the story, don't you think? Like, literally raised by communists. I'm not, that's not hyperbole. That's his story. That's what he said. Frank Marshall Davis, literally card-carrying member of the Communist Party. Literally investigated by the FBI. Now, of course, this was during the Hoover era, so, you know, everybody probably, uh, yeah, but literally a communist. His mom at the bank, or his grandma who worked at the bank, right? Literally a communist. His mom, socialist. This is what broke up uh, her and uh, uh, the dad. Uh, uh, Lolo Suerto, I haven't drawn a blank on a Suerto, Solerto, forget his last name. Um, the Filipino guy that uh, helped raise Barack Obama when he was very young, right? That's what broke him up. Because Lola was all about, hey, I'm working for Coca-Cola. This is a great gig. Capitalism's awesome. And Obama's mom, not a huge fan. <laughs> so they ended up splitting. Anyway, so like the Red Avenger, Red Diaper Baby. This is like part of his origin story. Anyway, 
Wokeness, according to David Graham, has supplanted socialism as the primary boogeyman among conservative politicians and pundits. There's a reason why is because we are aware of what's going on around us. We listen to you when you talk stupidity. We listen to what you're saying when you advance these ideas through K-12 education and teacher training programs. We are watching. We are seeing the results. We are hearing the kids coming back talking like a little Maoist. We're watching your struggle sessions play out on college campuses. Yes, we are very much aware of what's going on. This isn't a see again. This is uh, this is a, an example of the messaging. Part of this is because capitalism has won. Oh, has it? What with the expansion of Obamacare and all of that, the out of control spending. The impending collapse of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. Oh, okay. Is that what is that what we're seeing? That capitalism has won. This is what winning with capitalism looks like. Does it? Okay. Yeah, I disagree. Two other changes have also pushed the socialism charge to the side. See what he's doing is he's separating socialism from wokeism and then saying that each one is separate. And dismisses each one as a, quote, boogeyman, as just, you know, overblown hysteria from the right. When, in fact, they are interconnected because critical race theory, which is part and parcel of wokeism, right? All of that traffics in the same underlying theology of Marxism, specifically neo-Marxism. I mentioned him last hour, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian communist, thrown in prison, wrote the notebooks and talked about how uh, Marxism is, is, is great, but that Karl Marx got it wrong in that he thought the economic classes could be pitted against each other in economic warfare. Where Gramsci was like, no, no, it's the culture that the bourgeoisie, they, they infect the proletariat by telling the proletariat, the workers, they tell them this is what the acceptable culture is. So the wealthy are the ones that direct, and the middle class, right, the, the, the landed gentry, they, they tell the workers that this is our culture, but the workers have a different culture. See, but the workers get brainwashed. And so what needs to happen is the commies need to get into the, the institutions and, and proceed on their long march. And they need to tell all of the people in the proletariat these cultural norms are being, they're being uh, impressed upon you. And, and you need to dismantle that from the inside through the institutions of the bourgeoisie. In other words, the, the cultural institutions, the arts, the media, politics, schools. That's, and that's where critical theory came from. That turned into critical race theory. That's what we see now. And this offshoot social-emotional learning and such, or culturally responsive training, I've seen it now referred to as. Two other changes. He says, first, after the initial pink scare of the early Obama years, both parties shifted their focus more towards racial politics, a dynamic that continues today. Oh, so it's both parties did that. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Barack Obama won, that people were so happy that this was going to turn the page on American race relations and it seemed to have gotten worse. It seemed to have gotten worse because people didn't want to take the win. There are too many livelihoods and industries that were set up for, uh, for divisiveness, right? Grifting. 
The dominant faction also in the Republican Party, embodied by Donald Trump and now Ron DeSantis, has abandoned its commitment to limited government. That part's true. I don't know about Ron DeSantis, but um, instead embracing a muscular role for the state, especially in enforcing conservative cultural values against the progressive ones labeled as woke. Now, this is what Christopher Rufo argues, and he's a big anti-CRT guy. Chris Rufo argues that um, conservatives need not be shy about using the levers of state power in order to fight back against the infection of this, this theology inside the institutions, many of which are controlled by state government, namely education. Right. If if the government is in charge of setting policy, setting curriculum, hiring teachers, dictating what norms are passed down to the next generation, then conservatives need to control those levers of the state government. You can't play laissez faire here because the state is already in control. You know me. I'm I'm lowercase l libertarian. My view on is get government out of K-12 education altogether. My, uh, my my compromise position is uh, vouchers. But I would prefer the state be out of it altogether. But I know most people are not there yet. So I say voucherize the entire system like Medicare. Come on, you guys on the left, you love Medicare. That's a voucher program. Use it, or, or, or food stamps. It's a voucher program as well. Use it like that. Why can't we do it like that? And then people can pick and choose where they want to go to school and get the values instilled in the next generation that their parents prefer. He says some characteristics of the wokeness discourse, including critiques of free speech, a focus on equitable outcomes and critical race theory, the actual academic movement, are somewhat novel. He says, but of the backlash to wokeness is just repackaged versions of old racial backlash. So there you go. You're racist if you oppose the wokeism. Most notably, the frequent use of critical race theory to mean practically any discussion of racism or critiques of political correctness. Now, like, who are these people you're arguing with? I mean, maybe the maybe some people on Facebook who just throw around these terms and don't know what they're talking about. But in all of the major publications from, you know, uh, uh, pundits on the right, they're using these terms in the proper setting. In the proper context, they mean the proper things. They're not using it as dog whistles, right? They're attacking the theology, the ideology at the root of critical race theory, wokeism, right? This postmodernism. That's what we're talking about. All of this stuff is infected postmodernism. The long march through the institutions. Now, part of it, I will say, though, is that a lot of people on the right have abandoned limited government as a principle. That part is true. And I got a message here from Lee who says, Pete, I am sure the Chinese were having lots of interesting discussions trying to describe the insanity that was taking their country over in the 1940s. We have the advantage of foresight. Make no mistake, it is the cultural revolution repackaged for the Western audience. Indeed. If you don't know what the Cultural Revolution was, the parallels are striking to what we are seeing. Right? The the youth, you know, Mao and they use the youth in order to take out the four olds, right? The old customs, basically the old people and the old way of doing things. And you got rid of all of them. And they did public shaming, uh, assaults and such. 
on the intelligentsia, a lot of the you know people that were advocating for you know things like two plus two is four, right? You got to get rid of some of these people, <laughs> get rid of these enlightenment kind of ideas. Anyway, um, so you tear down all of that, and you, but you weaponize the youth, and that is that's always been one of the hallmarks of revolution. You 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 got to get control of the next generations, and you got to teach them about what you want the country to be versus what it is, if you're trying to change it, if you're, dare I say it, fundamentally transforming, right? And so that's why they went through and all the teaching colleges and stuff. This stuff, it's been going on for years. It's just all now bearing fruit. By the way, uh, Joe Biden issued his first veto of his presidency yesterday, and it was in service to the Church of Wokeism. Republican-authored measure that got vetoed. It would ban the government from considering environmental impacts or potential lawsuits when making investment decisions for people's retirement plans. Okay, this is a very lengthy Associated Press piece, and nowhere in the piece are are the letters ESG mentioned. Well, I I should say ESNG are all in the piece at some point, but they're never put together in capital form as an acronym. But that's what this is about, ESG. Now, the AP does reference environmental, social, and governance investments, but they never put them all together and call it ESG. Why? Because it, too, has become toxic. Right? You're starting to see companies, I think Vanguard, one of the big ESG companies, Vanguard is talking now about, yeah, maybe we're going to dial back some of this stuff because it's now becoming toxic, just like woke, right? Just like critical race theory. Once people find out what these things are, they st- the, the proponents of these things have to start rebranding. Got to change the messaging. The measure vetoed by Biden would have effectively reinstated a Trump era ban on federal managers of retirement plans. Considering factors such as climate change, social impacts, or pending lawsuits when making investment choices. That's how the AP uses it. I've talked about this before. In journalism, when you are doing a story that, as they say, has legs, in other words, it can carry over into multiple days. If a story is going to be reported over, a, you know, it's, a, it's an ongoing story. When you, the first story you write in this series, um, you know, you're trying to work out the language and over time, and you can see it happening if you're following any of these stories, and this, like the AP is a good example of it because they, their stories appear in so many publications, that when they adopt a, a, a boilerplate description or a template, you'll start seeing it replicated over and over and over and over again. Anytime now this story about ESG gets done, I'm sure this is their template. This is how they describe it. The veto could also help calm some anger from environmentalists who have been upset with the Biden administration for its recent decision to greenlight the Willow Oil Project, a massive and contentious drilling project in Alaska. But critics say so-called environmental, social, and governance investments allocate money based on political agendas, such as a drive against climate change, rather than on earning the best returns for savers. Republicans in Congress who push the measure said environmental or social considerations and investments by the government are just another example of being, quote, woke. Again, never mentioned 
the term ESG. The New York Times did a guide to ESG the other day. It was a bit misguided. Andrew Stutterford, writing at National Review, breaks it down in depth. One of the keys, I thought, um, he talks about the long term, that this is all about the long term. He's listening to the the New York Times uh, guide. They did a podcast on it, and they keep focusing on, oh, these are all about long-term investments, long-term, like this is good for the long-term. Well, what is that? What are they saying? That we have to do these ESG policies, we got to start rating companies and stuff for the long term. First off, I thought we're all going to be dead from climate change in like 10 years anyway, which most of us already died from climate change, from the global warming before it became climate change. And those who didn't die from that are dead from net neutrality too. But uh, in 10 years, like why are we planning for long term when we're all going to die anyway? But what are they also, what are they also acknowledging here? That short term, you're not going to make money on your investments. And we're going to take your money, we're going to put it into vehicles that don't earn you a return on your investment in the short term. So if you got a short term retirement coming up, you're screwed.